Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a release came out this morning that says that Hamilton has got its contractor and two different asphalt experts and ready to start repaving the Red Hill later this month. In an op-ed, former MPP and Ontario Cabinet Minister John Malloy has called out the Ontario budget and says it will change the province for generations. And it looks like the USMCA trade deal could be dead in the water. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A release I sent out this morning says that the city has uh, got a contractor, actually maybe even two contractors and some consultants and everybody else, and they're going to tackle this idea about the surfacing on the Red Hill. And uh, I know this has been in the news for the last little while. Uh, city council's been kicking around a number of different ideas towards solutions on this, and it looks as if it might actually get started in the next little while. Uh, joining us to bring us up to speed on what's happening is John Paul Danko, who's the uh, city councilor for Ward 8, and uh, joining us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, John Paul. How are you doing today? Morning, Bill. I'm doing pretty good. How are Ex- you? Excellent, excellent. Listen, thanks for taking the time with us today. Uh, I, I want to get into some of the details about this, but maybe you could just give us a brief overview on how the city's going to attack this. My understanding is it may actually start in the next week or two. That's right. Uh, we're pretty uh, excited to get going on this as soon as possible. It's been uh, you know, a long-standing concern for Hamilton citizens, and uh, the repaving is an important part to make sure that we uh, we address uh, some of those concerns anyway. So th- this contract, now that it's uh, awarded, um, it's going to schedule to be complete by July 22nd. And uh, each lane of each direction of the Red Hill will be closed for paving. So the entire northbound section will be closed, um, and then the entire southbound section. And there's a small break in there from June 3rd to June 9th, uh, where we're not going to do any work to accommodate the uh, the Canadian Open in Ancaster. Now, when you say, for instance, I think the northbound section is going to go first, uh, and it's going to be closed down entirely. Now, are you going to allow traffic on the southbound lanes, or is it going to just no, you can't get down the Red Hill? Is that the way it's going to be? It'll just be the southbound traffic, as I believe how it's set up. So all northbound traffic will have to be rerouted, is, is how I understand. Okay, because somebody was asking me on the weekend whether or not that you're going to actually have traffic going both ways as you were doing this. It sounds as if that's not going to be in the plans. No, and, and I, I believe that would be a safety concern, right, where you have yeah. uh, high traffic on uh, on a small road that's not you know on one direction of the road anyway that's not meant for that so okay. my under my understanding is is that the intention is to reroute that traffic we'll have uh, advanced signal timing we'll have uh, detour signage up um, and try to make it as as painless as possible but in any construction job it's always uh you know once once you close a road especially a road that's important to hamiltonians as the red hill is um, it, it, there's going to be some construction headaches. That's, there's no, no way to get around that, unfortunately. Well, when I heard this, it, it brought to mind, uh, I, I guess it was about four or five years ago now, when uh, they decided to repave the link uh, in subsequent weekends. You know, they're going to do eastbound one time and westbound the other. Uh, so essentially it was shut down. And as I recall, uh, it was essentially impossible to, to go from east to west in, or at west to east at all in the city because just about every east-west corridor, uh, whether it was Fennel, Mohawk, uh, Stone Church, I mean, all the way up past Rymel, was gridlocked just about every Saturday yeah. and Sunday. So, I mean, it's going to be a, a headache. Is there anything the city can do to try to uh, accommodate the, the increased volume that's going to spill over into the other roads now? Well, we're, we're doing our best to put up uh, advanced signage to sign effective detour routes um, to, you know, we know that with that crusher traffic that uh, we're going to have to adjust some of the signal timing to give priority for that north-south traffic. 
Um, so there are some things that we can do on on the detour routes to uh, to accommodate that traffic. But the reality is when when you do close a road that has high traffic volumes like that um, for a construction job that's important as this one, um, there there is going to be an impact on the public. And the advantage of closing the road is that it allows us to get a much better quality job. It's much more safe for the workers. And it also gets allows us to finish it much faster. So in this case, um, the entire job is scheduled to finish by the end of July. So for a job of that scope, that's that's pretty quick. And and if we were to stage the job, if we were to allow two-way traffic, um, it could easily double that. So you know, it's it's kind of pulling off the bandaid really fast. You know, get in there, get it done, and and get it back to back to normal as quickly as possible. Well, there's going to be a huge, huge increase in volume of traffic, I guess, on just about every other mountain access. Hmm. Yes, there will be for the for the duration of the the contract, and we'll we'll try to communicate as much as we can uh, with the public and with the media to make sure that people know what the construction schedule is. So, for example, when it's closed, when it's going to be closed, when it's going to be reopened, and try to to mitigate those traffic volumes as, as best we can. All right, let's let's talk about some of the the nitty gritty on this thing, and I'm glad that you had some time to talk about this because you've got a background in engineering, you understand some of this stuff, and and maybe you can explain a little bit of this. First of all, uh, two consultants are working on this project. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure what the the details of the uh, of the contract is, but uh, I know we do have a, a, um, a qualified quality control consultant that'll be doing the the QC testing. Um, so beyond that, I I, I can't. Uh, I'm not sure I can help you out any further with that. Well, from uh, what uh, Gordon McGuire says, he's the engineering director, of course, uh, suggesting mm-hmm. that uh, there's a special consultant here to develop specifications for resurfacing on quality aggregate. Uh, this is now it's getting into the inside baseball stuff here. They're talking about asphalt, cement, and frictional characteristics. So, what do they mean by frictional characteristics? So. It, it, when you make asphalt, it's kind of like uh, it's a civil engineering version of baking a cake. So there's a bunch of ingredients that go into that asphalt. And how you proportion your ingredients and the quality of the ingredients that you have depend on what the asphalt is at the other end. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a joke in the industry that if, if you put it down black side up, you've done your job right. But in, <laughs> in, in fact, asphalt is actually very complicated. So um, I get, my my understanding, I guess, would be that that consultant it would be an es- act, would be an expert in asphalt and mix design, and uh, because of what happened with the previous mix, you know, we want to make sure that we get it right this time around. Okay, but how do you decide which kind to put down on a roadway, do, and and does it vary from d- different parts of the city? Yeah, it does, and it also varies depending on which part of the road that you're building. So, for example, um, the base course, like the bottom of the road, is a much coarser mix that's meant for stability and uh, gives the asphalt its strength. And then when you get up to the top, you're, you're, it's a much finer mix that's the surface course, and that's where you're talking more about the friction and the uh, the, the ride characteristics. So, um even in even in the same job, you'll have different uh, types of mixes on the same roadway. So, and, and is it the same formula then for every road? I mean, if uh, if you were repaving Upper Kenilworth, would you use the same kind of asphalt that you'd use on the Red Hill? No, not necessarily. Usually, municipalities in the province they have their standards for what their preferred asphalt mix designs are. Um, some use like a high stability mix. Some use a standard mix because it, the cost changes as well. So, if you're doing, uh, for example, a driveway or a pathway, 
you're not going to use the same quality of mix that you would use for something that's important as Red Hill. All right. So with that in mind, I, I guess the obvious question a lot of people are going to have is, uh, what kind of mixture was used in the Red Hill initially that, that seems to be causing the problems, or at least seems, and I say seems to be, because I, yes, that's yet to be determined, I understand. Yeah, and that's an interesting question, and uh, I, you know, I don't have all the answers for that one, of course. Um, but the mix that was used initially was uh, was a trial mix which the MTO was developing at the time. It was a it was a mastic um, asphalt cement mix. It was actually supposed to be a very high quality um, asphalt mix, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it didn't turn out to do to work out that way. Um, as as civil engineers, it's one of the things is we're we're very adverse to risk and and changes and. That's a good example of uh, why we keep things the same. Well, in hindsight then, and, and of course this predates your time on council, but uh, should they have made, was it a gamble to actually try something new without really knowing exactly how it was going to react? No, I don't think so. Like, I think um, when they developed that mix, they, you know, they would have done all their laboratory testing, and it, it was very high-quality material. So I don't, I don't think there's any reason to expect that it would uh, perform the way it ended up uh, performing. But, uh, you know, we, we do have to try to develop new ways and new ways of doing things and improving our techniques, and, and that, was, uh, that was an attempt uh, along those lines. So it's just uh, unfortunate that it, it didn't work out the way that it was intended. Now, has, has anybody else used this same mix? I mean, this is not the only roadway, I'm sure, in the province that, that uses this. And is this the only one that seems to be having problems with it? Um, I'm not sure. And I think that's something that the judicial inquiry will look at. I know it has been used, the, the original mix, the actual mastic mix, has been used by the MTO on, on, MTO, on, sorry, on 400 series highways. So I, I would expect that that would probably be one of the questions that uh, the judicial inquiry would delve into to see where else it has been used, has anywhere else had similar issues, because obviously you want to look at those kind of comparators. Now, again, with your civil engineering background, maybe you can help us out with this too. Uh, uh, we're told here the city will certainly increase the friction on the roadway by uh, repaving it to provincial highway standards. Uh, mm -hmm. what, what standards were used initially? Um, I'm not sure. I might, no, I'm not going to speculate. I'm not sure what the standards were originally. But this, this time around, my understanding is the contract would be to Ontario Provincial Standards, OPS, which is the standard in Ontario for the construction industry. Everybody uses that standard. All contractors are familiar with the standard, and, um, it, it, and it provides a very high-quality product. Okay, but there's an insinuation here, John Paul, and I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this, as I know you are too. Uh, when they say they're going to bring it up or use provincial standards, that seems to indicate to me that they didn't uh, initially, uh, that this is going to be a different approach to it. And, and I, I find that intriguing. I'm, I'm not sure that it's a different approach to the paving, and, and uh, but it is a different uh, product that's being put down. So going back to the analogy of the cake mix, it's a, it's a different cake. Yeah, so we're going to get the QEW asphalt as opposed to what was on there before, what is on there now, I guess. Well, well, we'll get a more standard mix that's used um, throughout the province that's tried and, tr tried and tested and true. All right. Now, this was the resurfacing, just so, so we can be clear on this, the resurfacing was going to happen anyway, wasn't it? Maybe not this summer, but it was going to happen sooner than later. That's right. That's my understanding. Uh, the, the mix that was on there was near to the end of its uh, service life, and it was scheduled for, uh, for resurfacing. Is that usual? Because, uh, you know, it hasn't been that long, really, that the roadway's been open. 
Well, it depends on how heavily the, the road, any given roadway is, is used. So the heavier the truck traffic in particular, the shorter the lifespan of the asphalt. So in this case, I'm not sure if that's usual or not. I haven't uh, delved into, you know, kind of the reasons why it's being resurfaced. But um, typically asphalt has a lifespan of, of 15 to, uh, to 20 years before it needs some maintenance. So in this case, the relatively falls into that time frame. Okay, so that's 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 not suspect at this stage. Uh, and as mentioned, the city's going to roll out some information packages about this. I guess they can probably go to the website, too. Uh, while I've got you here, you did mention the, the judicial inquiry. Uh, what's the status on that now? Where are you in that process? So just at our last council meeting, we... Um, we formally adopted the questions that we were sending in to, uh, to the judge to be part of the judicial inquiry. So my understanding at this point in the process, and, and we also approved the budget with an upset, upset limit. Um, so my understanding this part, at this point in the process, we're going to the province to ask for a judge to actually oversee that inquiry. So we're waiting to hear back for who that will be and what the uh, what the timelines will look like. Okay, so you have to make an official request for that. And uh, do you have any idea what the timeline is? How quickly the government can respond? Well, the hope is that uh, the judicial inquiry can be uh, can be completed. I, I believe the timeline that we we're hoping for is around a year. Now, these things uh, once they're in the hands of the judge uh, who's overseeing the inquiry, it's up to them to delve into any and all um, areas that they think is relevant to the investigation. Um, which is why the budget that we set was was so high. I believe it was seven million dollars. We're hoping not to go anywhere near that, but you know we have to have, be realistic that it, it could delve into areas that we're not uh, anticipating at this point. So um, to have a, a enough a high enough of a budget that all that'll be taken care of. So to give you a timeline, I can't do that because once the judge gets into it, um, we don't know where where the investigation is going to lead. But the hope the hope was originally to have this uh, you know well underway and if not finished, close to being finished within a year. Now, I, I obviously the we saw the seven million dollar uh, price tag for this, and I know some of your council colleagues kind of had sticker shock when they saw that. Uh, is that a ceiling, or is that just an estimate at this stage? Because uh, yeah, as we all know, the longer things go on, the more expensive they're going to be. Uh, is there a possibility it might be more than seven million? Um, so that the seven million is the upset limit. So that's what we're expecting the absolute maximum to be. Now the the intention and the hope is that it'll be well under that but we had to have a robust enough budget so that we didn't approve an inquiry and then run out of budget in the middle of it and have to come back and, and ask for more money so um that that's i believe that's where the seven million dollars came from well the process begins and uh, we're going to start to see some action on that roadway i guess in the next week or two uh john paul as always thank you so much for taking some time and explaining uh, what seems to be a very intricate uh, project appreciate the time today no problem. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. John Paul Danko, of course, uh, Ward 8 City Councilor. Uh, and we'll keep you posted here at CHML, too, about the construction, when it starts, and uh, uh, we'll, I'm sure, have discussions about alternative routes, too, because it's uh, going to get a little messy for the uh, first few months of the summertime. Anyway, traffic standpoint uh, is going to be somewhat problematic, but lots more to talk about as we get closer to that date. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In an op-ed piece, uh, former MPP uh, and uh, Ontario Cabinet Minister uh, John Malloy has uh, basically said, look, don't fall for distractions. This new budget will change Ontario for generations. 
Uh, John, of course, is a former Ontario uh, cabinet minister. He now serves as the director for the Centre for Public Ethics, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, John. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? Excellent. Good to have you back on the program. Uh, and a very timely article. I mean, you know, the, the budget was presented by Vic Fideli weeks ago now, but even as late as, as this weekend, we're still getting little dribs and drabs of how it's going to have an impact on our lives, aren't we? We are, and I mean, part of the objection that I raise in the op-ed piece isn't uh, is obviously about some of the substance, but it's also the way that it's being done. I mean, the budget. Uh, when I talked to friends, they said, "Oh, wow, they're changing our license plate. We're changing our, our slogan for the province." They weren't talking about the details that were in it, which were minimal, and now we're getting more of those details coming out. I mean, you know, let's let's have a debate or a discussion about some of these measures. They're, they're going to be significant. They're going to affect us for generations, and, and we should be talking about them, not talking about this stupid license plate issue. <laughs> you, you haven't even mentioned the fact that the bars are going to be open earlier. Come on, this was a good news budget, wasn't it? I'm saying, tailgate, I'm saying tongue-in-cheek. Tailgate parties, and I, you, know, you know what? I've, I've had a number of people ask me what specifically a tailgate party is, <laughs> so maybe... Maybe there is, uh, you know, more to the budget than I thought. But I mean, these are. Listen, I, I realize there's a there's a, there's a group or, or, or a group of the population that's concerned about changes to liquor regulation, and and that's great. We can have that discussion. For but as I say, for a lot of people, they weren't even sure what a tailgate party is. They're talking about that. They're not talking about some of these uh, cuts, which are which are going to hurt people. Well, and we've tried to do that on the program, and I've I've met with a mixed success to it because, like I say, I get a lot of pushback from some people. Some saying, "Hey, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was going to be done." The others are just saying, "Look, leave these guys alone, all right?" Because they they're just trying to get Ontario's fiscal mess cleaned up here, and you know it's going to take some 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 time, and it's going to make some tough decisions. But I said, you know, for the longest part, John, I'm not sure sure that people pay much attention to this. We are kind of living a, with politics by headlines now, aren't we, as opposed to getting down to the, the, the actual detail of what the policy is going to do? Exactly. And I, I mean, the Ford government, they were probably high-fiving each other because the headline the day after the budget was no major cuts. Uh, no, you know, this is not a slash and burn budget. And I think most people, they, they saw that headline, they thought about the new logo or the new license plate, and they got on with their lives. And what they didn't realize, if they had kids in post-secondary education, for example, huge cuts to student aid. This uh, reduction in tuition sounded good on the surface, but it means that our colleges and universities will have $450 million less to uh, uh, fund their kids' education. So you're going to have the double whammy of less student aid and less funding for your students. I didn't see that highlighted in the budget, the way the whatever, whatever it's called, the three men in a hot tub logo was. And that uh, uh, headline that you saw in so many papers was misleading. Well, because there's cause and effect, and I don't know that we pay much attention, but we need to about that. And, and the, the tuition, I think, as you mentioned in the op-ed piece, is a classic example of that. Hey, students, this is going to be great. You're not going to have to pay as much for tuition next year. Uh, but they don't talk about the effect, as you mentioned, the impact it's having on those institutions. They also don't talk about the fact that, uh, that money for students is going to be a lot harder to get now, and it's going to take a lot longer to pay back. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, but, but as I also make the point, uh, you know, in case someone says this is a, uh, dismisses this as a partisan rant, let's have that discussion. 
what uh, how what is our responsibility as a society to our students in terms of assistance and in terms of money to colleges and universities i mean if if Doug Ford wants to say, "Look, uh, we're facing some financial difficulties." Let's have that discussion. This is what we think. We think the balance is, uh, should be tilted more, that students and their families are paying it out, out of their pocket. Well, let's, let's have that discussion. Let's have that debate. Let's put ministers and the premier out there, and, and you know, we can, we, it can be the thing that we're discussing around the proverbial water cooler as opposed to uh, tailgate parties or the fact that bars can now open or bars can advertise happy hours. As I point out in the in the column, I had a few people say to me, "I think my bar already does that." I mean, this is this is the ridiculous discussion we're having instead of discussions about about post secondary education. I also point out uh, the ministry, my old ministry. It's now changed a little bit, but uh, children, community, and social services just sort of quietly said over the next three years we're going to cut a billion dollars out of that ministry. I've been in charge of that ministry. What it basically does is fund people in crisis, whether we're talking about people in social assistance, women who are fleeing uh, uh, domestic abuse, uh, uh, individuals with special needs. You know, a billion dollars out of that, that's going to have a big effect on, on a very vulnerable part of the population. There is a debate to be had. How much do we owe that section of the population? Well, let's have that debate. Let's not talk about logos and license plates. Well, there's another element to this, too. And as somebody who was on municipal council, I was on the Hamilton City Council back in the 1990s, uh, when uh, the Harris government started doing this, and essentially, I know it's a dirty word for politicians, but they were downloading stuff. And, and it's, it's not as if that program disappears. If you want to keep it, that means it's going to fall under your property taxes. So it's going to have an impact on each and every one of us, John. I mean, you know, you may not need a woman's shelter. Now, a lot of people do, sadly. That's a growing number. But there's going to be an impact because we're all going to have to pay for that on our property taxes. And as we all know, the, the property tax system municipally, of course, is, is, is a punishing tax because it's not based on your ability to pay. Well, exactly, and particularly as, uh, you know, our population ages and you have a lot of seniors, they always say, you know, house rich and cash poor, and, and their numbers go up. And who do they blame? They blame the municipal politicians because they have to pay more for public health or, or, or more for a variety of, of services that the province is, uh, is downloading. And the, the problem is, I think the minute you use the term download, everyone's eyes uh, glaze over. Uh, you know, and their 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 thoughts go to buck a beer or or what the new slogan for Ontario should be. I mean, these are important discussions uh, to have. And you know, I, I I keep repeating myself. This isn't some partisan rant. Let's let's have that discussion. Let's talk about you know has how has the balance shifted? Should municipalities paying more be paying more? Should property uh, uh, taxes uh, account for more of it? That's a very serious discussion that a government could lead. But no, they put out a budget with all the silliness up front, and they've been introducing these things quietly. It's sort of been dribbling out, and their hope is that, that most Ontarians will remember that uh, headline they saw the day after the budget. This isn't slash and burn. In fact, increasingly, it looks like it will be slash and burn. Well, and there's a, there's a methodology here that I think we need to have a discussion about as well, and that's the way in which they're doing this. Uh, which I have not seen from any government previously, federal, provincial, anywhere else, is they announce policy and then they say, now we're going to do public consultation. I mean, isn't that kind of putting the cart before the horse? Well, exactly. And and when they announce 
the policy? Are they really explaining what they're doing? I mean, you know, when it when it becomes uh, uh, convenient, they talk about the the deficit. Uh, when it isn't convenient, they just kind of are, are sort of vague as to why they're doing it. I mean. I, I realize, you know, I was there. Governing is complicated, but you you kind of expect a, a, a vision of this is the way we're going to govern. These are the principles. This is how we're going to apply it to these situations. Um, not uh, coming out surprising the world uh, with uh, you know the 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 move last week where they surprised the world with new plans around housing, which are going to change the way uh, people can appeal planning decisions and things like that, which, again, before anyone's uh, uh, eyes glaze over, think of what happens in your neighborhood when uh, a new building or housing unit or apartment goes up and it seems to be totally out of place. I mean, that can get people very, very upset. And yet there was no consultation. There was no set of uh, uh, principles that were applied to this. They just came in and, and released this thing to in the legislature. And now people are going to have to scramble and, and try to change the legislation. And, you know, good luck to them, because I think it's just going to go through with the majority. Well, and again, you're absolutely right. Until it has an impact on your neighborhood, maybe a lot of people don't pay much attention to that. But you look at, for instance, what the city of Burlington has gone through over the last couple of years about their downtown redevelopment plans. Uh, and, and the OMB played a large part in that because the, the, it became the fallback position for a lot of people that said, I'm not even going to negotiate with the city. I'll just go to the OMB and let them rule on this. So the previous government, as we know, made some revisions to that process and said, we're going to give more power to the municipalities so that they can have a, a greater say in how their city is going to be developed. And that kind of made sense to me and I think to a lot of people. But this announcement last week, John, essentially says we're going back to the old days now. So who's that exactly. going to benefit? And people aren't aware of that. And people won't be aware of it until, uh, you know, there's a, a development in their neighborhood, which seems, you know, I mean, we need development, we need new homes, but it seems totally out of line. Uh, it's, it's unpopular, it doesn't seem to fit the rules. And, you know, I've heard of these situations. I mean, uh, council's outraged, the citizens are outraged, and the developer sits at the back of the room, you know, reading the newspaper, uh, wait, waiting until council rejects it so they can go to the Ontario Municipal Board. That balance was was corrected, and now it's it's gone back again. And maybe it was corrected too far. Maybe the new law didn't work. But, again, let's have that discussion. Let's have some consultation. Let's have the government out, uh, come out and explain the rationale behind it, not simply uh, dump this piece of legislation and, and simply say this is uh, about getting more homes. Uh, that hopefully we will see more homes and more housing and that sort of thing. But come on, this is this is a lot more about uh, uh, the development community, which which felt hamstrung by by the last piece of legislation. But for people that are busy in their lives, and and, I, and that's understandable. We get that, you know, whether it's you know you know soccer practice or you know music lessons or whatever else it is, or taking courses maybe to try to better themselves and get a a, a better shot at a, at a decent income. There's all sorts of things going on, but we do fall prey to that. Don't we, John, of just going with the headlines? I mean, how many times did Doug Ford say that, look, at he's going to find $6 billion in savings, but nobody's going to lose their job from that? that, that yeah, how many? I, don't, I can't even count the number of times. Now, in the last two weeks, I've talked to a number of teachers that are going to lose their jobs. So, well, I mean, but that, said, that's not the headline. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, his, his uh, statement that you could sneeze at Queen's Park and find billions of dollars lying around, I mean, that's, that's just... It's so disingenuous, and it's, it's, it's cynical, and it's taking advantage of the fact that people have busy lives. If they had said, look, we're, we're in a, a financial crisis here, 
we're going to do some tough things. Uh, this is what it's going to look like. This is why we're doing it. Um, you know, here's here's our plan. Uh, we could have that debate and discussion. And, you know, I mean, I, I work at a university. People tend to be quite engaged and, and involved. And i got to tell you, over morning coffee, everyone was talking about the new license plate. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> they were talking about the new slogan. Uh, and, you know, so I congratulate Doug Ford as a political actor. He managed to, to, to pull it off. But I'm a voice in the wilderness saying, you know, let's not get distracted by this. Let's let's talk about some of the things he's doing. And we're going to have to do some some work, each of us individually, to educate ourselves. But it's, it's going to be tough because in this day and age, people don't have a lot of time. Well, and let's face it, the fact that he's using taxpayer money for a website, a news website that's putting all this stuff out there, too. Uh, that's something untoward that I don't see previous governments ever doing either. But I guess the thing that bothers me about this is, look, at you know, no matter who you supported in the last election, no matter who you voted for, there's a change of government, and yeah, they've got a majority, so you know they're, they're going to develop policies. And a lot of, not everyone's going to like them all. We all understand that. You've been in the business long enough to know that, too, John. But the, the fact is, is if you're going to develop a policy to try to, quote-unquote, save money or find efficiencies, whatever phrase they want to use, that's going to have an impact, as you put it in the piece. Some people are going to be disadvantaged. Some people are going to actually be in, in big trouble because of this. Governments will usually say, look, it, we're sorry that we have to do this, but you know what? We're going to try to help you out a little bit and maybe get you back on your feet so, so you're just not left high and dry. But this government just seems to say, look, it, if you're collateral damage in this, too bad, so sad. Well, they're not even acknowledging uh, the damage that, that that will be done. I mean, if you want to take a look at that billion dollars in in savings, it's it's just buried in the budget, uh, and it's in the most high level uh, vague terms. Uh, you know, it's 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 a, a ministry now that's that's you know a number of them brought together. But I mean, I know the numbers there in that ministry. I spent hours and hours and hours with uh, officials trying to make the numbers work. A billion dollars is huge, and it was it was buried. It's it's basically uh, you know a sentence or two, and then a little bit of a description about you know merging some some youth treatment centers, and then they talk a little bit about efficiencies. And you know, my, immediately my uh, the radar went off for me because I thought, well, efficiencies, I know what that means. That means uh, uh, getting rid of programs or, or cutting assistance. You know, these are serious things that are going to affect people, and they're not even acknowledging that. If they wanted to say, look, we think social assistance is too generous in this province, uh, so we're going to cut it back, let's have that debate, let's have that discussion, and it would be, it would be a worthwhile one to have, but to not acknowledge it is uh, really trying to pull one over on the voters. Well, because what they will do is they essentially make up uh, stuff uh, you know, that, that's going to substantiate and validate their point of view. Uh, when, when Mike Harris cut social assistance rates back in 1995, he said, uh, if you recall, his rationalization for that was all, about 38% of the people on this are, are cheating the system. Well, he just he pulled that number out of the air. There, there was no proof of that. Actually, the, the study, science that had been done on that showed that it was about 3 or 4%, not 38%. But that helped to justify the policy. And, and this government's doing the exact same thing. Well, I mean, we need, we need, we need some facts. We need... Uh uh, a good discussion about the values that we have in Ontario. Uh, you know, I think we all have to recognize that uh, we've got to pay for it. Uh, you know, if we we want tax cuts or we want uh, things cheaper from the government, whether they're services or that sort of thing, I know they've been dealing with licenses. That's fine, but that also has uh, uh, repercussions in terms of what we pay for things. So, you know, we need to have a, as they always say, a grown-up conversation. 
where we talk about the system, the way it works. We talk about potential savings and the fact that it, it could hurt people. And, uh, you know, what are the facts? As you say, if, if they want to claim that there's abuse going on in the system, well, show us a study, show us the facts, and let's have that uh, discussion because it's, these are important decisions and they're being done almost behind the back of, uh, of everyone. Well, we're going to do what we can, obviously, in the media, and it's getting more and more difficult to do that, obviously, because you're going up against the public relations machine uh, with governments uh, funding themselves to actually put this sort of stuff out. But uh, your, uh, your op-ed piece is a good starting point and a good catalyst for this conversation, John. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to be with us again today. Oh, it's great being on your show. Thank you. Take care. John Malloy, of course, uh, from the uh, Center for Public Ethics. Uh, check out the, uh, the piece today. Don't fall for distractions. This new budget will change Ontario for generations. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday uh, on CTV's question period, uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, uh, one Bruce Heyman, uh, was speaking about the uh, trade deal. And, uh, and again... <laughs> I, I don't really know what to call this yet because it's got a different name on either side of the border. Of course, it's the USMCA deal uh, down in the States. Uh, but up on this side of the border, we're not very comfortable with having that there. So we've uh, decided to put the Canadian moniker at the beginning of it. So it's the COSMA deal up here, Canada, United States, as opposed to U.S. Canada. Yeah, I know, potato, potato, right? But anyway, Bruce Heyman essentially said, look, the deal is essentially dead. Uh, it's not going to get ratified by anybody anytime soon. Uh, which is bad news for an awful lot of people, especially in the steel industry here, because the tariffs are in place, and there's so much more at stake here, too. So is uh, the former ambassador bang on here, or is it just fear-mongering? Let's uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation. Business professor, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Hi, hey, Marvin. How are you today? Glad to be here, Bill. Good. Uh, is, uh, is Mr. Heyman just the bearer of bad news, the grim reaper of economics? Well, first, let's just talk for a minute about Mr. Heyman himself. Yeah. Uh, he was the ambassador that was appointed by Barack Obama. So he does not speak for this administration. He has no ties to this administration. And, in fact, I'm willing to bet that this administration has no use for Mr. Heyman. So I feel he is somewhat impartial to all of this. And what he is saying is something that we've all been thinking for some time, is that the window of opportunity to approve USMCA is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's not impossible, but a lot of things have to happen in a very short period of time. So just again to go through a couple of those things, uh, Canada and Mexico have said that we're not going to approve the deal until the United States drops those tariffs on steel and aluminum. aluminum. Uh, Vice President Pence in the United States said uh, the opposite. We'll drop the tariffs the minute you approve the deal. So that's, that seems to be a problem. Uh, second thing, the... Um, Democrats in the House have said that there are a few things they are worried about in this uh, deal. One of them is some labor laws in uh, Mexico. Uh, in essence, under free trade, uh, Mexico's agreed to give workers more rights and, and give them an improved working condition, what have you. But they're going to pass that legislation again after USMCA is approved. And the Democrats have said, we're not going to approve it until they pass all of this. Uh, and then there's Mr. Trump himself, who let's say roughly a year ago, seemed to think this might be a hallmark of his first term as president, that this was something he really wanted to go out to the campaign trail with. He doesn't talk about it at all anymore, um, and I don't know if he's given up on it. So if you have an administration that's not interested in pushing it, if you have a situation in Canada that in six weeks the House will rise and probably will not uh, convene again until after the fall election, you've got Mexico not willing to do anything, 
it just seems like this current deal is, is just not going to happen. Well, and there lies the problem, and you're right. I think there's, there's problems on both sides of the border on the political scene, are there not? Well, uh, there, there are, Bill, but I mean, worth noting, again, just so everyone understands, although this is the new deal, we still do have a deal in place. That's called NAFTA. This was the deal that Mr. Trump said he didn't like at all, but just because he didn't like it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So we're still operating under a framework. It's just not the newly revised framework. Well, and as to his attention span on this sort of stuff, I mean, we do know that he tends to go from one thing to another. He kind of loses interest and just doesn't even mention it anymore. Uh, and he's got bigger fish to fry as far as he's concerned right now because he wants to go after the Democrats because of the, the Mueller report and et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think he's even thinking about trade. And if he does, if that ever does you know, flow through his mind for a couple of seconds, it's to do with China, not with Canada. Well, that's correct, Bill. You know, on the weekend, uh, after nearly a month of relative quiet on the trade front between the United States and China, uh, Mr. Trump once again got on Twitter, this seems to be the place you announce policy these days, to say that he believed that within a few days, meaning potentially by the end of this week, the United States was going to announce increased tariffs on Chinese goods now totaling, under Mr. Trump, this is his tweet, $325 billion dollars tariffs on that many goods, uh, you know, that would be just amazing. That would mean this trade war has broken out again. And, and maybe again, in Mr. Trump's world, he feels that taking on China gets him more points or scores more points politically than going after Canada, the United States, or having peace in Canada, the United States. He, he also seems to, Bill, at times say that he, he, you know, he likes tariffs. So his desire to remove those on steel and aluminum in Canada, the United States, or Canada and Mexico, seems to be so small he, he just doesn't seem to care. And, and so, therefore, I think, uh, yes, it's quite possible that this deal is dead. And uh, isn't it a shame that 14 months of intense negotiation are just going by the wayside? By the way, just a sidebar issue, but I saw that story about over the weekend, too, about the increasing the tariffs on, on Chinese goods. Th does he not get it that it's the Americans that will pay that tariff? <laughs> Has that not resonated with him yet? Well, or or that when China retaliates, that they're going to put them on other kinds of goods that might cause more pain than he does. This is what happened with our tariffs. When the United States put the tariffs on steel and aluminum, we responded with equivalent dollar-for-dollar dollar tariffs, but we were much more selective about the products we put them on to cause some economic uh, chaos and damage in the United States. The Chinese are just as clever as anybody else. They're not just going to match him. Uh, with the same goods, they're going to pick goods, target goods that will have a bigger impact on the economy. No, he, he doesn't get it. And, and again, partly, Bill, is because at least last year, the American economy was chugging along quite nicely. Now, we've been seeing reports in the first, uh, and even now we're into the second quarter of 2019, that says that the American economy, much like the global economy and the Canadian economy, they're all slowing a bit. Uh, this is the kind of thing, this tariff battle, that could actually tip the scales and send everything back into a recession. And the one thing you never want to do when you're a president is try to seek re-election in the middle of a recession. So hopefully, again, something will click for him. But for the moment, uh, full speed ahead. Let's, uh, uh, politics and, and economics are, are obviously have to be mixed up here because they're so intricately involved with each other. Uh, the politics, as you mentioned, on this side of the border is we do have a federal election coming up this October. Right. Uh, this new deal, the USMCA deal or, or whatever you want to call it now, was not very popular in Quebec. And uh, let's face it, if, if the Trudeau government wants to get reelected, uh, they're going to have to curry favor with uh, the people in Quebec. Is that one of the reasons why they may be just kind of cooling off on this until maybe sometime after October? 
Well, and let's also point out why they needed a curry favor in Quebec. Uh, in particular, under this new USMCA, we were going to relax some of the rules around supply management. This yep. was going to very much hit the dairy farmers, people who raise chickens, eggs, etc., etc., and that's an important part of the Quebec economy. Now, even though I would say to you, Bill, that the changes were relatively marginal, in other words, yes, we were going to allow a little more American milk into the market, but we're measuring it in fractions of a percent, not in whole percents, you know, I felt there were some other ways to, to uh, cushion the blow. But now, if Mr. Trump uh, puts this... Uh, uh, or, or just refuses to get this thing ratified, I, I think any government can go back to Quebec and say, uh, look, you know, we're, we're going to rethink this. That, that deal is now dead, so we're going to start with a fresh sheet of paper, and again, we're going to support supply management uh, and do all those things that we can to uh, to avoid having all that fear that you're doing of, of competition. But I don't know how that will ring true. And by the way, just so you know that they're not untarnished here, the Conservatives have been saying for some time that what Canada should do is drop their counter-tariffs on the United States first as a sign of goodwill to incent the United States to sign the deal. Mr. Scheer also has his hands dirty in all this. I'm not sure there's any high moral ground for anybody other than the NDP. Well, and therein lies the problem. It's obviously going to be an election issue, and as to how we want to see this dealt with, I guess, is that's how they're going to try to form their policy on this. But there's, it's just as, as complicated down in the states now, and you, you mentioned about the fact that now that the, the Democrats control the House of Representatives, uh, Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem to be in any rush to even look at this legislation, let alone give it a thumbs up, and they've got some serious concerns about it. So you can't see that getting on the agenda off the bat. But, you know, Ambassador Heyman made an interesting point on the program yesterday, though, Marvin. Uh, and, of course, he's a Democrat, so he laid the blame for this at Donald Trump. But there is some some rationale to, to, to his accusation. I think the phrase he used was uh, uh, that he uh, messed up the clock on the timing of this mm-hmm. deal. Because Trump did have a chance back in 2017 to get an after-deal signed. I mean, Lighthizer gave him the deal that was already negotiated between the three countries, and Trump threw it, said, no, I want more concessions. Yeah. And had he done that at the time, this, this wouldn't even be an issue now. Right. So just to keep everybody in the same loop with us here, Bill, uh, back in 2017 and, of course, the first half of 2018, Mr. Trump had a, a Senate and a House that were both Republican-controlled. So he's a Republican as president. You had all these Republicans lined up. And, and even though they weren't always happy about it, they tended to rubber stamp whatever Donald Trump set forward had he had this deal signed, oh, let's say at the end of 2017 or early 2018, there would have been enough time for a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate to ratify it, and he could have had a new deal. You're right. He didn't like the deal that was originally proposed to him. He wanted more concessions. I'm not sure he got significantly more concessions, but it added nearly a year to the negotiating, and the final deal didn't get approved until the fall of 2018. He didn't sign off on it until November of 2018. Well, wait a minute, November of 2018, that's when the midterm elections were happening, and he was only going to have to give this to the new Congress, which I guess maybe he thought in his mind he had coattails, would continue to be a Republican Congress, but he got his surprise when Democrats were elected instead, and he lost all that control. So, it, yeah, it's a different, a different thing. Now, I will say, Mr. Trump does have uh, maybe a Plan B, uh, or even a Plan C. Plan B, of course, is to uh, continue to operate with NAFTA as it is, complain about it bitterly, say he had a better deal, but those darn Democrats, they wouldn't approve it. Plan C, of course, would be what he's always talked about, which is ripping up NAFTA. The only problem with that is Mr. Trump doesn't have that power. That's the power 
of the Senate and the Congress. And again, with a Democratic-controlled Congress, I don't think any of those people are interested in ripping up the deal. So he really has painted himself into quite a corner here. In the meantime, as you mentioned, the status quo is the existing NAFTA deal, which uh, should be tweaked, obviously, because there's a lot going on in, in, in economics right now that wasn't even in existence back when they signed the initial deal. So I don't think anybody disagrees with that rationale that something needs to be done. But with that old NAFTA deal, though, Marvin, come the tariffs. And uh, uh, it's just like a bad coal. These things just seem to keep lingering. And it's, it can't be a very healthy economic situation. No. So under, under the old NAFTA, which is what we're also operating under today, we could certainly uh, take uh, the United States to something like the World Trade Organization, complain that these are unfair tariffs, uh, and seek a judgment. And I think we actually are doing that on one front, uh, and, and hopefully they would rule in our favor and make those tariffs go away. We've done something like that before under softwood lumber, and, and we're arguing that these are not, there's no economic rationale for them. This whole thing was um, uh, national security. Canada poses no national security threat. So I think we've still got that leg to stand on. But we, we've been slowing that up. We haven't been pushing that because that's confrontational, that's argumentative, that's you know, maybe rubbing some salt into a wound. And the old saying is you get more, more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. Can we find a way to, to sweeten the pot and get Mr. Trump to do the right thing rather than the others? His administration seems to be also quite divided on this bill. We've heard many senior people who have said, or hinted at least anyway, that these tariffs were going to be gone sooner rather than later. Just give us a little while. As you and I have talked, Mr. Trump signed them into uh, existence through an executive order. He could make them go away this afternoon with an executive order. So, you know, it's just, again, what does he want to do? Where is his attention span? And at the moment, I don't think we're part of it. And then there's that's part of the concern about you know just where this is going to go here, because uh, I've understood the, from reading some of the American media outlet that that what's going on here is even some of the senators and and House of Representatives uh, in some of those states that are impacted by the Canadian tariffs are, are starting to to complain to the White House saying look you got to do something about this, but he's oblivious to that that's white noise to him right now. Because you know his whole concept of I'm the strong guy here, I'm the guy, I'm the the, the deal maker. Uh, he doesn't seem to want to negotiate. I, I I get the sense there's an awful lot of people on both sides of the border. They just want to hit alt, you know, control, delete, and just start all over again. But I don't sense the White House is is one of them. Right. So again, if, if I'm Mr. Trudeau, or if I was Mr. Scheer, if I were to get elected this fall, I, I can't control policy in the United States. All I can do is lobby, and so I would continue to talk to the senators, to the House of Representatives, to governors, even to mayors, and make the case that Canada stands by. We're still an important trade partner. We're your, your ally for a hundred years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and continue to push them to do the right thing. As you're suggesting, there is quite a chorus in the United States of elected officials at all levels, municipal, state, and federal, who are singing Canada's praises and putting pressure uh, on Mr. Trump. Um, as you've also, though, said that we're falling this course on deaf ears. He doesn't seem to be motivated by it. But you just you have to keep pushing. And then every now and again, there might be a window. Something might happen. Don't know what that would be, but something might happen that catches his attention, and suddenly he changes his mind, and that's when we have to act. So we have to be ready at a moment's notice to, to act if that window comes up. In the meantime, we've got to try to open that window, and lobbying seems to be the best way we can to make that happen. i got about a minute and a half left here. i got to ask you about the other news on the weekend, economic news. Uh, uh, Christia Freeland asking the, uh, the United States government to intercede in the, the, the battle that's going on uh, between Canada and China, the trade war, really. 
Uh, well, it's gone deeper than just a trade war now because people have been arrested. There's a lot of accusations, and it really has everything to do with the Huawei arrest that was done uh, some months ago right now. Uh, is, is the U.S. government inclined to get in the middle of this? <laughs> no, uh, and, but that's because their relations with China are so poor at the moment, too. Uh, I think they understand that this whole thing began when Canada, uh, acting on their request, arrested Madame Mung at the Vancouver airport. It was the United States who said, look, we have an arrest warrant outstanding. She's coming into Vancouver. She's going to be changing planes. Can you do us a favor and arrest her? We did that favor. We're holding her on an extradition hearing, an extradition hearing that should be starting this week sometime, unless there's another extension to it all. But that simple act of, of executing an international warrant is what's got us into trouble with China. Um, uh, China, I guess, doesn't believe in that rule of law or thinks we were being selective about it. Uh, we've asked the United States to say, hey, can you, can you make it clear that we're not doing this because we wanted to do this? We're doing this at your behalf. I, I just don't think the United States cares. Uh, if they were going to speak to China at all, it would be about their trade problems. I actually thought things were getting better between, Canada, or between the United States and China, and thus maybe that would make some sense. But now if Mr. Trump wants to put more tariffs, that relationship is also soured. There's nobody in North America we can turn to to act on our behalf. So I'm afraid the best thing that we can see happen is a fast extradition hearing, and I hope not to put any pressure on the judge, but maybe him saying there really isn't enough rationale for us to send her back to the United States. That would be the best news for Canada in a long time. And get her on a plane like 30 seconds after that. Exactly. All right, and because, it's, I mean, Christy Freeland's probably still on hold waiting for a response because this is not going to happen. I'll, I'll even offer to charter the plane. Look, I'll even <laughs> offer to charter the plane to get her back home. Uh, mind you, I would also tell you, Bill, I think China played a little bit about this when she, she was flying to Mexico, but she chose to fly via Vancouver, and she knew she was going to have to step off in the airport to change planes. She could have had a private jet take her directly there. That's what Huawei is worth. They don't have to fly commercial. I think they actually set this up to some extent. Could well be. Could well be. Marvin, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.